Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Miriam Knight Show. I'm Miriam Knight, the publisher of New Consciousness Review, and I'm pleased to welcome my guest today, Keith Skeen is an academic, and together with his colleague, Alan Murray, they have collaborated on an important, if rather depressing book called Sustainable Economics, Context, Challenges, and Opportunities for the 21st Century Practitioner. It is important because it provides a comprehensive overview of the nature and interrelationships among the environmental, economic, sociological, and political issues feeding into the rather pressing challenge of ensuring the continued existence of humanity on this planet. It is depressing because our likelihood of success in meeting this challenge is not at all self-evident. Anyway, Keith Skeen is the director of the Biosphere Research Institute, an independent, international, and multidisciplinary center for global sustainability. Having gained a first-class honors degree in botany, he completed his Ph.D. in plant developmental biology at the University of Dundee in 1997. He worked as a lecturer for 13 years at the College of Life Sciences, University of Dundee, and he also lectures in postgraduate courses at the University of St. Andrews and the University of Dundee. I'm very pleased to welcome Keith Skeen. Welcome, Keith. Hi there, and hello to your listeners. Yes, pleasure to join you tonight. Well, I'm delighted to have you here, and I'm going to start by setting the scene with a few juicy quotes from your book. I have a fine. So, open quote, according to, I assume that WWF is the World Wildlife Fund? Absolutely. Okay. According to their Living Planet report, 35% of the world's natural wealth has been lost over the past 30 years alone. Close quote. Now, as people in developing nations improve their standard of living, there will be a huge increase in resource consumption and waste, even without a population increase. As a result, the World Wildlife Fund suggests, open quote, lifestyles in the developing world at present require the resources of around two planets to sustain them. And if emerging economies follow the same trajectory, this will rise to two and a half planets by 2050, end quote. And finally, this quote from Professor Harrison Brown. He wrote in 1954 that, quote, a substantial fraction of humanity today is behaving as if it were engaged in a contest to test nature's willingness to support it. And if humanity had its way, it would not rest content until the earth were covered completely and to a considerable depth with a writhing mass of human beings, much as a dead cow is covered with a pulsating mass of maggots. End quote. Now then, with that cheerful image in mind... Keith, could you please explain the difference between a linear economy and a circular economy? Well, this is a very interesting question, and the book actually really examines uh, the, the, the issues with this in detail. The, 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 the fundamental definition of a linear economy is basically you take a resource, 
you use it and then you turn it into waste and that's the end of the story. So you've got accumulating waste, in other words, and decreasing resource. So as you use up the planet's resources, you're converting that to waste and that waste is therefore increasing and the resource is decreasing. So it's a one-way one way street, really. Uh, a circular economy, as, as uh, sort of imagined by many of the current sustainability thinkers, is a, is a cycle. So therefore, we've got the uh, initial resource coming in, um, it's made into a product, but then the product is recycled in various ways uh, to return the resource back into the loop again. So you're, you're, you're therefore not needing to take as much resource in um, and it's going round. So it's like a roundabout rather than a one-way street. <laughs> so, so everybody's driving around this roundabout and, uh, and it's whizzing round. And uh, <laughs> yeah, you don't leave the roundabout, but at least you're not damaging uh, the, <laughs> the area around. So it's, um, that's the sort of two, the, the two sort of principal ideas really on how we are doing things and how we could do things. And moving towards a circular economy is thought to maybe reduce the burden on the planet and therefore lead to a, a more sustainable lifestyle for, for humans. You gave a really interesting example of the Caterpillar company. Mm-hmm. Uh, t- tell our listeners about that. Well, yeah, that's a really interesting company because, you know, it, it's big industry, you know, huge machines. Uh, and the kind of things you think are the enemy of, uh, of uh, sustainable thinking, really. But this company does a very, very, very interesting thing. It takes um, sort of worn out, broken down uh, machinery that it makes of various types, and then it reconditions them. So instead of building from scratch again, it totally reconditions them. So it takes the engines apart completely, um, repairs whatever needs repaired, replaces minimally what it needs replaced, and then releases that uh, machine back into the marketplace. And therefore, it can sell it again, sell it on, makes profit from that, obviously, uh, but also then it's reducing the amount of resources that it's taking in, uh, you know, in the first place. And Caterpillar really led the way in this. Um, so they're, they're very progressive in this reconditioning approach, yeah. If I recall from your book, they have been doing it since 1978? Yeah, well, exactly. That's, that's another shock to, you know, some readers uh, when, they, uh, when they read that, because, uh, you know, they, these guys have really been progressive. A lot of these ideas, you know, have gone back. They, they, a lot of them kicked off in the late 60s, and then with the oil crises of 73 as well, uh, when there was a real panic um, many, many, many different uh, movements began within industry uh, to, you know, to start to be more uh, environmentally sustainable. It's quite interesting because markets that go up and down for raw materials massively affect manufacturing, and therefore, you know, this was this was very sort of uh, not by any means everybody, but some companies who were right on the ball realized if they could reduce the cost of raw resources, which were going up and down market-wise, they could reduce the insecurity of their costings. Um, so therefore, they could be more, you know, they could say, well, actually, we, we can predict next year how much it's going to cost because we're not going to have to worry about a raw resource market going up and down massively. Mm-hmm. So that, I think that was, a, that was a, a significant, you know, factor in Caterpillar's decision, certainly. Yeah. 
Now, as someone stemming from the life sciences, you talk about the laws of thermodynamics a lot. What is their relevance to economics? They're hugely relevant for, for, for one very major reason, and that is it points towards a complete failing of all sustainability thinking, or just about all sustainability thinking. Because what the laws of thermodynamics simply say is that you require energy uh, to, to exist, first of all. So you need to gain energy. You can't make energy within yourself. And our energy mostly comes from the sun. So we get this energy from the sun. And, uh, and then the other thing it says is the second law says that that energy will get lost, will, will, will become less useful. And so therefore we need to keep gaining energy to, to survive. So not only do we need to take energy in, but we need to keep taking energy in. So, you know, like the, the whole concept of breakfast, break fast, that's breaking the fast that you've been in overnight. So, I mean, each of us actually goes into a, a fasting for about eight hours at least uh, every day. So you feel like, wow, imagine going fasting. That must be a huge thing. We're only for very spiritual people. But we're all fasting overnight unless we sneakily sleepwalk into the kitchen <laughs> and, uh, you know, sort of feast ourselves without realizing it. But I don't think many of us do that. So, so we need to take food in every day. Um, we need to break the fast. Otherwise, we will just gradually weaken and cease to function. So we need food. And that's because the second law of thermodynamics says that that food we took in yesterday will be burnt up and lost. And so we need to take it in. Now, many people in sustainability thinking um, think that we can base our models of economics on nature. We can base it on nature. And it sounds great. Yeah, yeah, wow, nature is so cool. Oh, it is so cool. You know, the forest is beautiful and the trees are growing, and you don't see people going into a wild forest in the north of California, you know, the beautiful forest you've got up there, um, and, uh, you know, you don't see them going in and having to prune the trees every week. You can just leave a natural forest, and it controls itself, and it's all in balance, and it's a beautiful thing. So, you know, why don't we base our economics on that, people think? <laughs> but actually, there's a huge problem with that, because... The, the economics of nature is completely false. Um, it's, a, it's the most profligate of all economies, yeah? Because every day, there's a lorry coming in from the sun packed with gold bullion. And that gets wasted every day. There's constant sunshine. And then that gets burnt up. And then they need constant sunshine the next day. Now, just as an example of this, the dinosaurs, yeah, uh, came unstuck about 65 million years ago, because somebody switched the light out. One was a giant comet hit the earth, dust flew up and blocked the sun from getting in. And it went into a six years of, of winter called an impact winter. Now, the problem with that was that there was no longer the gold and lorries arriving every day for the natural economy. And what happened? The natural economy collapsed completely. So the natural economy is not a cycle. It's not this perfect cycle that people think it is. It's reliant on a huge amount of income, energy rather than money, pouring in every day from the big banker, big generous leaky banker called the sun. And that energy is required every day. So unless we are getting extraterrestrials delivering you know, millions of dollars every day into our economy, 
we can't have a parallel to the natural economy because it doesn't work. So thermodynamics says that nature is wasteful and profligate and needs um, money coming in all the time to run its economy. Um, and we can't run our actual economic program like that. So we can't look to nature as an example. And that's what the book, one of the messages of the book is. Mm-hmm. You had a, an amusing uh, description of the cowboy economy versus the spaceman economy. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, so this is going back to sort of Boulding, who was one of the great thinkers from America on this subject. And he was saying that, uh, you know, that uh, so the, the, the cowboy economy sort of wild, you know, I, I mean, it's an interesting image of a cowboy. Cowboys mightn't actually agree with it because they're probably running a business as well, even back in the 1800s in America. And so they have to make some sense of their, their economics. But they had, you know, they had resources that seemed unlimited, the prairies, the cattle, the bison, and they could start to shoot things and, and uh, market things you know, r- rampantly without uh, any thought to limiting resources. Whereas the spaceship image that building conjured up was that we were in this little spaceship flying through outer space, and basically, we, we, uh, we have to be very careful with everything because we couldn't get anything else. We couldn't, you know, go back to Earth and get some more food or more oxygen or anything like that. And so we were, he envisaged the Earth as a spaceship saying, we've got limited resources and we shouldn't waste them. Uh, we, should, we should keep them. Now, the, the problem with that is that uh, his idea was that you could, again, have this perfect cycle running in the spaceship. But again, nature doesn't work like that. Um, there is massive waste in nature. Um, I'll give you an example, which is quite interesting, about this whole waste thing, because people would say, well, actually, if, you know, if there's all this waste going on, how, how, how come the planet is so complicated? How come humans can build complex societies and, and so on? The reason they can build complex societies is because they take in more and more energy to do that. If you cut the energy off, those complex societies collapse, just like the complex ecosystems collapsed uh, uh, during the KT 65 million years ago dinosaur extinction. And so complexity is only there Uh, because it's producing increased waste, really. And so it agrees with the second law of thermodynamics, because the overall universe is becoming more chaotic as complexity builds. And we can only have complexity because we've got the sun right next door to us. It's shining in. It's light. Uh, But the sun is actually becoming more chaotic and will eventually expand to consume the Earth anyway in about, or maybe about another 5,000 million years or so. Yeah. You draw a parallel between this complexity you're describing and um, resilience or, um, I guess, uh, exposure to uh, extinction events and and catastrophe. Um, Can you go a little more into depth there? Yes. uh, As complexity builds, um, connections between... Uh, various um, elements present will will increase and and complexity comes from it's not just um, a a building that's getting higher rather it's a whole series of buildings that are becoming interconnected and the more interconnections you have theoretically the greater stability there is because the thing can sort of glue itself together 
but it also becomes vulnerable um, if the overall uh, energy needed uh, starts to decrease. So it's like a, a complex Western economy where uh, we've got lots of money, everything works really well. But, you know, in our little village here in Lesson, it's a tiny village, 2,000 people, middle of the countryside. We're surrounded in deer and forests and red squirrels and beautiful, beautiful wildlife all the way around. But um, our library has now shut because of the recession that happened in 2009. And it shut about four years ago because the council ran out of money and couldn't keep our village library going. And that's been a huge loss to this little community. You know, our kids can't go and get little books there now. Old people can't meet there. It was a real social hub as well as a, a reading centre. And so if the incoming energy or money decreases, then a complex society will start to unravel. And that, that's a significant threat and problem. So in a way, you're better with a, a lower level of complexity because it is less susceptible to a decrease in energy. And the problem is with humans is we have built such a reliance on energy, such a huge reliance on it. We've got, you know, we've got 7 billion people on the planet. Um, only about a quarter of them are living our kind of lifestyle. And the other three quarters are living a much simpler lifestyle, actually. But they're catching up rapidly in the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China particularly. These people are becoming more like us, and we're encouraging them to do that, to live our Western lifestyles, Western philosophies, Western lifestyles. And that is high energy consuming, high resource consuming. And so as the world moves, even if we froze the population now, we'd have a massive problem ahead because these three quarters of the world's population will continue to increase their footprints on the planet. And we in America and in Britain have got massive footprints, about 20 times that of the average Chinese, for instance. So one of us is the equivalent of 20 Chinese in terms of um, environmental destruction. As the, as the Chinese and Indians and so on, and you, you can't really argue against their right to do this, become more like us in their lifestyles and philosophies possibly, then the problem is that what's going to happen is we're going to get a massive increase in resource use, a huge increase. Now, I've often compared this to living on top of four elephants, building a house on top of four <laughs> elephants. And that's all fine as long as you keep feeding the elephants. But if you stop feeding them, then the house and the elephants will all collapse and it'll be a disaster. And so our world, our planet is artificially propped up on a huge energy uh, scaffolding. And if that energy decreases, then we've got massive crises uh, going to hit us because we will not be resilient at all. We will, we will collapse down to a very uh, basic level indeed. And that will be a significant shock to uh, to people basically out there. You know, people talk a lot about peak oil, but one of the eye-opening things that I read in your book was that we have reached uh, peak levels of some of the minerals uh, and, and ores that I didn't realize were just as essential to an industrialized economy as oil. Things like... Uh, was it lithium? Oh, for yeah. batteries, of course. Absolutely. Yeah, lithium and graphite, amazingly, is also becoming much scarcer. Graphite's at least as important as lithium in these batteries. So phosphorus, scary one, mass, uh, crucial to all agriculture, and we're running out of phosphorus. So, and there's nothing can replace phosphorus. 
nothing can replace lithium. So, yeah, in terms of the new energies, the renewable energies, there's a major crisis. The wind turbines rely on rare earth metals, which are only really available from China um, at present. And the lithium is mostly in Chile, I think it is, yeah, yeah in Chile. And uh, the, the, that's where most of the world's uh, lithium comes from. And there just isn't enough lithium to build a transport system of battery-powered vehicles. There just isn't enough of it to do that. And there isn't enough graphite either to, to put on those batteries. So, you know, we've got major problems here with the renewable energy potential. Also, interestingly, uh, uranium is running out. We have reached peak uranium across the planet. So even if we wanted to switch to nuclear power, uh, there wouldn't be the uranium um, available to do that. So, yes, I, I think we're totally consumed with carbon. And this is a point you may bring up further. I'm more than happy to talk more about it. Our planet is consumed with carbon and coal and oil and the crises there. But actually, we're surrounded in a whole host of crises that are um, all there and they're all going to build, um, you know, heading over this next hundred years. Well, the, the whole focus on carbon is indeed an interesting aspect. And it, I think, um, was easier for the governments and the establishment to just focus on one thing because mm-hmm. the, the carbon sequestration and carbon trading is within the sort of economic paradigm that we've been living in. The, the business world seems to work on the principle that a, the economy needs to grow and will grow indefinitely and that technology will be the panacea to overcome any kind of natural limitation. But you point out some serious flaws in that kind of thinking. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the technology is a very interesting one because um, actually some of the major thinkers now are saying that technology is likely to be our worst enemy rather than our, our best friend and that our reliance on it brings in a greater vulnerability to humans. So if you think about uh, computer viruses, for instance, um, if you think about solar fluxes, which, uh, you know, which are huge fluxes of radiation that come from the sun uh, that can knock, out, can knock out satellites, for example, um, power grids, or you think about a change in the magnetic uh, sort of uh, setup inside the planet at the core, then these all threaten technology. So you can either have, you know, deliberate sabotage, such as, you know, viruses and so on, but you can have solar impact as well and magnetic perturbation uh, within the planet. And these three things can all have a serious impact on uh, the uh, uh, technology that we're becoming more and more reliant on. But also, <clears throat> excuse me, this technology is also reliant on many of these minerals that are running out as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the minerals that are metals that are needed. Like your average computer has something like 60 different metals in it. And many of these are actually running out. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's going to be threatened anyway by uh, natural resource availability or rather resource exhaustion. So there, there are many problems facing uh, technology um, as an answer to our, you know, our problems. You mentioned uh, rare, me- rare metals from China being an essential part of wind turbines, for example. Is that part of the green paradox? Yes, it's a very interesting one. And the other problem of it is that they, they cause incredible pollution in their extraction, which cause birth defects among the children quite 
clearly uh, you know noted by by significant scientific journals. You know these are not just uh, you know statements by uh, you know activists and so on. That these have been researched and proven. Uh, so there's this terrible chemical pollution comes from rare earth metal extraction. And that isn't sold to us when we talk about these wind turbines. You know, they're viewed as being this beautiful, <laughs> beautiful thing uh, that, uh, you know, that flows in the wind and generates energy from the breath of the planet. Uh, but actually, there, there, there's, there's this horrific pollution associated with rare earth metal extraction. And, you know, unfortunately, that's not being mentioned, um, as is so many of the other um, points that I raise in the book are not being mentioned by the, the green energy uh, you know, group. The other problem I've got is this thing, green energy anyway, because if you look at the amount of water that energy uses, um, each energy production, wind energy is okay for that, but many of the methods of, of green energy production, for instance, ethanol production, um, use vast amounts of water. Um, way more than coal or oil extraction. Incredible amounts of water are needed for ethanol production. And so, you know, water is a limited resource as well. And so, therefore, again, you know, it may be green, but it's certainly not blue. <laughs> I, I, just, I just want <laughs> to point out... Wasteful of blue stuff. I just want to point out that you had a, a table in your yeah. book that showed the levels of water required for the different forms of energy production. And um, ethanol was not just, you know, one order of magnitude. It was like four or five orders of magnitude greater. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's a big issue. uh, It was just astonishing to me that you need, you know, like, hundreds of thousands of barrel of, of, of um, liters of water yeah. for one unit of energy compared to maybe a hundred or a thousand for um, is some of the, the conventional fuels. Absolutely. Uh, and then again, this is information that is not being, you know, openly released to people. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, it's not being um, put out there. But again, that, that data comes from scientific peer-reviewed journals. You know, it's... Uh, it's highly reliable uh, mm. data. So, as you know, as is all the data in the book, obviously, as an academic, you know, that's what I focused on was getting to, you know, data that's been properly peer reviewed and, you know, is not debatable, <laughs> really. So, right. So, yeah. One other statistic that stuck in my mind mm-hmm. was the difference in CO2, in carbon sequestration of. Trees in the rainforest versus um, trees in normal forests, boreal forests in the the northern hemispheres. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like uh, more than seven times as much, and yet that's what we're kind of slashing and burning to create ethanol. I mean, yeah. it just boggles the mind. Absolutely. I mean, so much of it boggles the mind. You know, I mean, if we stopped eating as much, if we, if we just ate beef less than we do, you know, that would have more of an effect than driving a green car. If you, if you let, if, if, if someone ate beef, or sorry, didn't eat beef <laughs> for one day a week when they normally did eat beef, that is, that will be better for the carbon budget of the planet than driving, um, you know, a renewable energy car. So, <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the level of impact because, 
And what happens is that, you know, the cows, especially in the Amazon where much of the beef is coming from, need lots of grass to eat. So a lot of the rainforest has to be chopped down per cow. You know what I mean? Because the cow mm-hmm. eats a lot of grass. So, mm-hmm. so you chop a whole pile of, and you just get one cow from that instead of maybe, I don't know an exact number, but 30, 40 trees, something like that. And then the uh, carbon that would have been absorbed by those trees is now instead um, not being absorbed. The cow is eating the vegetation and releasing carbon instantly back into the environment. And that's all to feed our, our sort of, uh, you know, beef habit. So, you know, reducing beef is a great way to start if you wanted a simple way to, uh, you know, avoid uh, or to improve your contribution to planetary sustainability. Beef's a big problem. Interesting. Yeah. Now, there's a concept called Buen Vivir that is sort of the policy of certain Latin American countries like Ecuador and Bolivia. Um, Can you describe what that is? And do you think that this is an approach that could be adopted uh, around the world? It's a really interesting approach. And we could talk, we could talk for an hour just on this, but just very briefly to explain it. When we veer means uh, to live in a good way uh, is the actual meaning of the translation from the Spanish, basically. And there are many other terms for it in the actual languages of the native populations in around the Andes area, for instance, as well. But Buen Vivier is the one we'd know in Spanish. And it means to live in a good way. And what it does is it puts the environment and landscape at the center um, of thinking uh, about how to run a country. So each country will have an approach that is based on its landscape and environment. Um, and not a global solution. So this movement is sort of post-development, post-globalization. The idea is that we're moving away from a single Western Northern Hemisphere solution and rather returning more to a more local solution as such. And Buen Vivir is a very interesting concept. It then builds an economy around what's possible from the landscape and the environment and also builds it knitted in to the social structures that are there, so the indigenous populations that are there, and uh, even the the Spanish and Portuguese who have moved to these countries also, you know, still um, bringing in their more ancient knowledge from from what they could contribute as well. So it's not an exclusive approach at all, and and it's not indigenous people excluding everyone else, but it's reaching some kind of uh, a solution um, within the the, the sort of limitations of the environment and society, and then seeing what economics um, basically emerge from that. So economics is an emergent property of the environment and society, rather than it dominating the environment and society. And it's a very, very interesting thing, because we've got to remember that sustainability is fundamentally three things. at three arenas it plays in, social, environmental and economic. And unless we get some kind of, you know, proper balance between those three, then we don't really have a sustainable system. You can have sustainable economics, but that isn't socially or environmentally sustainable necessarily. Um, It just means economics keep going. And same with environment and same with society. And this is a key point in the book as well. What we've actually got is it's not a reductionist system. What I mean by that is it's not little blocks that we just build together 
and we build it all together and we construct our world. Um, instead, how nature really works and how the planet works is it's an emergent thing. And we've got all the little bits, they all work together, and, uh, and then they produce this greater outcome. And how I explain that is that um, if we think of us as humans, if we got all of the chemicals in our bodies, so like phosphorus, a lot of phosphorus in our bones, get a pile of that, pile of calcium, uh, water obviously, and then it's all the other little nutrients that we've got, and it's nitrogen and oxygen and so on, and we pour them into a big bucket and shake it up, we will not get you or me. Uh, we'll get a bucket full of uh, some stuff, <laughs> basically, um, because life is emergent. Uh, you can't just put the little bits together in a bucket and make life. And sustainability is that as well. A truly sustainable planet will require all of these three areas, economics, environment, and society, uh, to be solved as a one. And that means being suboptimal probably for each one. Um, it should be suboptimal, um, each one, because any solution that involves more than one entity will always be suboptimal for each entity. Um, it, it's just the way it is. Um, it's got to be like that. And uh, we need suboptimality in our thinking, not optimality. Uh, you know, when, 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 they, when the combine harvesters arrived and cut down all of the crops and harvested all of the crops, then so much of our wildlife uh, went extinct because it relied on the waste, the little bits of seed left here, there, and everywhere. And waste is actually essential in the whole thing. Um, so getting rid of waste is not a good thing. You want suboptimal functioning rather than optimal functioning. And this is where the big problem has come with humans. We have tried to optimize our existence. And we tried to live in a, what I call a bubble world in one of my earlier books, Escape from Bubble World, we were trapped in this bubble of just our interests. And then if we do that, then we can't possibly get a sustainable future because we are optimizing. And optimizing is a bad word in true sustainability. It's uh, just the way it is. One of the things that your book tries to do is encourage a kind of systems thinking um, and you describe the specialization of academia, which seems sort of antithetical to supporting the kind of systems thinking that we need to tackle these complex and, and interdependent problems. Would you say that you and Alan Murray are an exception to the academic rule or a harbinger of collaborations to come? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I, I think, yeah, we, we found each other, I suppose, in, in a way, uh, by our, our drive to, to co collaborate beyond, you know, our, our limited fields. And therefore, we, we felt that the solution space needed to be much larger than what we occupied individually. And so I think that's probably why we, we ultimately came together and that was not our premise. You know, we didn't set it right to each other and say, I am keen to increase my solution space. Would you like to share yours with me at all? <laughs> but but um, these are deep drives within both of us. Uh, so, you know, I, I uh, very much, um, uh, my organization, Biosphere Research Organization, our Biosphere Research Institute, sorry, was set up uh, to do this, to facilitate thinking between many wide 
a range of people. So I've got artists on board, we've got musicians, uh, philosophers, scientists, a wide range of people um, who who we we all interact together and then you know seek to expand our own thinking uh, by doing this and then collaborating on projects, hmm. a wide range of projects to uh, to you know to to be able to come up with some of this this broader thinking that's required really. Um, academia, it's a shame really. It's very much. Uh, it's very much sort of limited itself by being in competitive departments, and each lab is competing for money and resources. Each department is competing for money and resources, and therefore there isn't the either desire or will really to to collaborate to share ideas, because money's the big thing. You need to get money for your lab. You need to get you build that, and you know we've got a research assessment exercise in Britain which really drives that, and um, the government you know, judges the department on how much money it brings in. That's quite funny because I don't need any money at all. All my stuff's thinking. I need a pencil and some paper <laughs> and a computer. Uh, and then I can do all my work <laughs> quite happily with about oh, a few hundred quid a year <laughs> um, <laughs> would pay for my research, you know. Uh, but you're expected to get about, you know, a million pounds maybe to make it up to professorship, to, you know, British professorship um, uh, chair level in Britain. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, I don't need that money and I'm, I don't want it either. So there's no point. So, so I've moved myself out of the university. I left the university five years ago, University of Dundee, to set up this organization so that we would be free from financial pressure, basically. And we could just think and do our, do our things without uh, financial uh, needs. So it, it, it's, it's been great because it means I can get involved in all sorts of projects. Uh, that don't make any financial sense, but are are great for thinking and trying to address the planet's problems. Do you consult to organisations? Yes, we yep do cons- we do consultancy, and some of that if we're consulting with businesses, obviously we can bring money in that way. Uh, so, uh, and I'll I'll speak at various things. Um, what I tend to do is I, I'm free to the people who don't have money and then I charge the people who do have money. So that tends to be why I run my, uh, my the, the sort of way we approach things, basically. But, um, but we don't compete for grants because uh, we don't need to because we're thinking rather than, you know, needing experimental equipment as such. Um, so, uh, so we don't need to um, bring, you know, any significant kind of money in, basically. So you're sort of the Robin Hood of sustainable economics. <laughs> I don't know if I put it that way. No, I mean, <laughs> I think Robin Hood was a fairly questionable guy. You know, I mean. <laughs> now you say I'm that architect robbing the rich. You know, I, you know, I think they get their money's worth out of me. So. <laughs> you say that architecture straddles many of the key issues facing us in terms of sustainability. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, architecture is fascinating because it, it, it's right in the middle of everything. So it, it affects the environment. Um, sustainable architecture is an interesting, you know, green architecture, all that kind of thing. It's crucial for society. If you put everybody in a big tar block, it's probably less good for them than if they're living in a, in a more, you know, community um, sort of system with forests and greenery and, you know, recreational space. Uh, so it affects social structure. When you look at the big cities, you know, the most deprived areas often have, you know, quite obviously bad architecture associated with them. You know, it's a very, it's a very close parallel to 
poor architecture and social um, problems out there. It's a, it's a given, really, when you think of it. And environmentally as well, um, you know, architecture affects the environment. And instead of reversing it and seeing how the environment can affect architecture, so, you know, town design with major green spaces going right out of the city, the town in Britain called Sheffield, very, very interesting city, and it's parkland just goes out of the city from right in the centre and goes right out into the um, neighbouring mountains. And there's a, there's a, it's a corridor of green. And so you get all these wild animals coming right into the city, basically, and going right out again. And you can walk from the centre of the city right into uh, this park and then just keep walking out to the mountains. It's beautiful. And uh, it's a really interesting city, Sheffield in England. Uh, because of that. And there we've got environment influencing architecture and we've got architecture playing a significant role relating to that green space. Um, and then obviously economically as well, um, you know, we, we can think of the economics of building, but also um, the ability of people to get from where they live to their job and how architecture could affect that. So, you know, if we have sort of um, more uh, localised sort of areas where people can go to work in a small little mini office, really, rather than traveling away to a big office, you know, and incorporating all of that into the architecture. So there's a wide range of thinking going on in how architecture fits in, but it really does affect all three of the big arenas, as I was talking about, yeah. Now, you talk about barriers to change, and one of the biggest ones is ideology. Particularly here in America, free market capitalism seems to be as enshrined as Christianity. How do you even begin to tackle that? Yes, it is a significant issue. Um, because these barriers, uh, well, I was writing that, that chapter really, I wrote a couple of chapters, but we put one in the book in the end. One is on very specific areas, but we didn't put that in. But this, this looking at the more generic barriers, um, ideology is, is, is central to that. How you address that is, is a massive challenge, obviously. It, 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 it's almost a, a, a crucial challenge. Well, there is a crucial challenge to, 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 to examine. And I think the way to address it, personally anyway, is to actually, like all of these sustainability issues, is not to try to sell somebody something or try to change the way they think, but is rather that one of the really big things that I wrote about in my original, our second book, Escape from Bubble World, was that the answers actually lie within us because we were originally much more connected not that many generations ago to our environment and to all that was around. And so our predecessors, our great-great-great-grandparents possibly only, um, were, had a totally different way of thinking than we did. They may have shared the politics we share, uh, they may have shared uh, many of the, 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 the modern views that we, 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 we have, we think are modern, but they had a much deeper um, relationship with the whole, with the society, community, the sense of community, and with uh, the sense of environment and the interaction of those two things together. And so what I think is, is, is the best way to impact ideology is actually to release uh, that which is within us, rather than to try to, you know, alter and brainwash and try to convince um, heavily that, you know, actually your thinking is wrong here. It's rather to say to people, you have lots of thinking within you. Now, explore that 
um, and, and take time to explore what really makes you click, what really makes you buzz, uh, what really makes you feel good about yourself. And uh, when you explore those things, they tend to lead back to community, a sense of community, and they tend to lead back to a sense of um, environmental interaction or conversation with the environment. I don't mean talking to a plant, but I mean being in the presence of plants and feeling, hey, this forest is part of something that I'm aware of in my mind. This forest is a part of that, or this lake uh, brings something to me that I can actually resonate with. And that's, you know, we, we, we've all been on these walks, gorgeous walks into the beautiful parts of Northwest America. I certainly enjoyed that. And in Scotland here, and Ireland, where I'm from, and you look at a landscape, and there's just this feeling, if there's nobody talking to you, you're just silent. It's a beautiful feeling, just a, an incredibly deep feeling. It's hard to put your finger on it, but, you know, there's, there's things going on. And you return from that uh, walk, and those things are still affecting you in the evening. You know, they're just they're there. And so I think those are the roots that are within us naturally. And so we need to excite those roots and let them spring forth and grow and actually not convince somebody to change their ideology, but rather release um, their, their thinking from within them, really. So, Keith, are you bullish or bearish on the future of humanity? Well, it's an interesting one. I think, uh, I think ultimately, I, 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 I would predict that we will change. Um, it's whether we want to change um, following a crash landing or whether we want uh, some kind of controlled landing. So we're flying along in this uh, very <laughs> resource-expensive plane at the minute, and we're going to have to land it at some point. And really, it is up to us how we want to land it. You know, we, we still have... I would definitely believe this. We still have the ability to have a relatively soft landing. Um, but um, if we ignore um, much of what's in this book, for instance, we ignore it, then we are going to have a crash landing because um, ultimately, you know, nature will not be able to sustain an increasingly um, expensive human race. As I say, even if we cut the, stop the population from growing at all or even reduced it, given the increases in Indian and Chinese and Russian lifestyles as they seek to approach the American and European lifestyles and Japanese lifestyles, it's going to be disastrous. It's going to be 90 times more fuel, for instance, um, if we attain the uh, development targets of uh, the UN. The UN wants to develop the world into a Western style of living. If we do not, we are environmentally in huge trouble. Um, we just, the planet will not cope with that. So either we need to move towards the poorer in our world energy-wise and reevaluate what wealth really means, and I mean wealth not in terms of economics only, but socially and environmentally as well. And, and if, if, we, if we get our wealth um, uh, sort of assessment changed, to actually include the environment and society, then we have a different definition of wealth. And therefore, decreasing economic wealth will increase potentially social and environmental wealth. Keith, Excuse I'm me. afraid. And so therefore, I think um, I, I would say that we, we need to address these issues fundamentally. There's no way around them. We're heading towards 
a cliff <laughs> and it's whether we uh, decide to uh, you know sort of take the sidetrack down uh, that doesn't go right off the cliff but meanders its way down gradually to um, a better place then uh, that'll be fine otherwise there will be a crash undoubtedly and right. it won't be pleasant this all for about two generations time so you'll learn all about it in uh, Sustainable Economics, Context, Challenges and Opportunities for the 21st Century Practitioner by Keith Skeen, our guest, and Alan Murray. Keith, thank you so very much for speaking with us today. Well, that's great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs>